It's my belief that the most impactful ag technologies of the future, the ones that reach real farm level adoption, will have a hardware component to them. A lot of the most impactful solutions that we want to build in this world are physical, right? And whether they're hardware or they're robotics or they're deep tech, you know, these are physical products that really add a lot of value um, and have positive impact on our society. As Suma Reddy from robotic startup Future Acres will attest, many investors are leery of hardware-heavy startups due to higher risks, such as the cost to commercialize and potential supply chain challenges. For sure, there's a lot of investors who would rather not play in the hardware space, and they might not play in the deep tech space, right? Because longer timelines and more capital and higher risk overall. Suma has found alternative routes to financing, such as a venture studio, equity crowdfunding, and special purpose vehicles to launch future acres. I think we're only really gonna solve some of the bigger problems we're facing in society if we do look at our existing models, whether it's entrepreneurship, company building, fundraising, and think creatively about like, what can we do better? Moving from zero to one with a robotics company using new approaches to company building on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode is brought to you by Sound Agriculture. Sound Ag's source product is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil, kind of like caffeine for microbes. You may recall hearing from Sound Ag CEO Adam Lytle on episode 295, and I'm really thankful that they decided to advertise on the show. Take advantage of Sound Ag's performance optimizer to identify which fields will get the most out of source corn. Using key data, they can help you place the product more accurately and decide whether focusing on yield lift or nitrogen reduction will give you the best results. The low use rate, flexible application window, and take mix compatibility make source simple to apply, and source guarantees product performance. Activate what's already in your soil to improve your ROI at sound.ag. And thank you to Sound Ag for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, joining me on today's show is Suma Reddy, the co founder and CEO of Future Acres. Suma's company builds advanced mobility and AI solutions for farms, starting with a robot called Carry, an autonomous harvest companion that increases production efficiency, improves farm worker safety, and provides real-time data and analytics to growers. So think like a fully autonomous cart or wheelbarrow that transports table grapes from where they're picked to where they are loaded out of the vineyard. We definitely talk a lot more about Future Acres in today's episode and Suma's vision for the intersection of people and technology in agriculture. We also talk about the labor problems that technologies like this one help to solve, but mostly we talk about ideas for funding companies like this, especially the venture studio that Future Acres was born out of, what Suma's learned from equity crowdfunding, and even a tiny little bit on leveraging communities to form special purpose vehicles or SPVs. This is where ad hoc groups of investors get to participate in investment alongside VCs or angel investors. So much fascinating stuff to cover here in today's episode. Suma's career got started as a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali, working with smallholder farmers 
And from there, she joined a high-growth microfinance startup in India, which ended up IPOing and eventually sold for a couple billion dollars. Then she returned to the U.S. and after business school, uh, jumped into climate and ag with renewable energy projects, followed by co-founding an indoor ag startup called Farm Shelf. But she felt pulled back to outdoor agriculture and found this opportunity to start Future Acres at a venture studio. That's where I'm going to drop you into this conversation for today's episode with Future Acres CEO, Suma Reddy. So I, uh, last summer when I had left Farm Shelf, I got really excited about Venture Studio models. So Venture Studio is an organization that productizes company building. So they might have a thesis, for example, food and ag tech automation, and then they commit to building minimum of five companies to start and capitalizing those companies with a few hundred thousand dollars. And, and so, who's they? Are, are these employees of the studio? Yeah, exactly. So so where I build out of is a venture studio called Wavemaker based in LA. And so they're most well known for actually their food robotics. They're doing a pizza making robot called Piestro. Misto Robotics just raised 26 million and that's collaborative kitchen robotics. And then they had been toying around with this concept around, you know, intelligent transport. And so recruited me uh, just through various friends who I knew who had jumped over there and uh, thought this concept was really interesting. So I spent three months really researching the space, speaking to academics who had also been part of the space and building solutions in the space. I was like, there's something really, really interesting, important here. And why table grapes? 99% of table grapes are grown in, in California. It's a really great market for transportation. So what we are doing is transporting you know, those crops across the field. And so you need that solution more so for specialty crops, which has three times the higher labor costs than you have for row crops because right, specialty crops are delicate. Take a machine, it will crush it, right? So you still need humans uh, to do the work. So it just felt like a captive, really interesting market in many ways. And I like food, you know, so some people are like, why don't you go into cannabis? Why don't you do these things? And I'm like, uh, I, you know, for me, I think my mission has always been around things that I think have some impact on society. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, work with blueberries and so similar uh, problems as table grapes for sure in a lot of ways. So when you were recruited to this venture studio, what, what did you know at the time? When you said yes, did you know... I'm going to be building a robot company in agriculture or like, what did you know at that point? And this whole model's new and interesting to me. Yeah, I think in entrepreneurship, I think it's going to change the way we build companies. It will be more efficient, more smart, and I think it's going to be less risky in the future. But in terms of what I knew, it was, here's our idea. There's a robot. We built a really rough prototype. The whole thing will need to be re-engineered. It's going to transport things around. So you have two options. You can take this idea or you can build a whole new company with a new idea. So I spent some time thinking about, does this company have legs? Does this idea have legs? Or do I want to branch out and create something totally from scratch? And so I definitely had that bandwidth, which was fantastic, right? And it was really me getting confident about the solution. I didn't immediately say like, this is great. This is genius because I didn't know anything, right? So I had to go in and say, okay, I'm going to talk to the professors from Washington State, from Penn State, from UC Davis. I'll speak to a couple different farms. I'll speak to a couple different investors. You know, I worked with actually an MBA student out of NIU to really just consolidate all this information. And then when I 
felt really, really confident. I said, okay, great. Like, this is something that I do want to build. This is something I do want to pitch. This is something I do want to, you know, create. And how's that different? Because you've been down this road as a startup, not in a venture studio. So how's it different in terms of, you know, you said it's kind of more efficient, less risk. What are sort of the tangible differences between the two paths? Yeah. So speaking from my personal experience as an entrepreneur, um, you know, my first startups that I was trying to build were in my late 20s. You know, I think one, it can be a very lonely experience. Two, you don't really know what you're doing. The first time you do this, unless you are that 12-year-old person selling cookies on your block, right? You don't really know how to build a tech company uh, until you've had the experience of you have great advisors. And so what a venture studio really provides is it's a huge support network. So when I came on, people processes and technologies. So for example, incorporation of the company, I don't have to think about the brand naming the company. So I came in with a branding team and said, okay, these are four names. What do we think we want to name it? And so I was able to just riff off that. You know, I had someone on the operator and strategy side who we were starting to plan our equity crowdfunding campaign who's doing all of that paperwork, right? So imagine as an entrepreneur, if you came in and said, hey, this is where I need support. And they're like, great. And they pluck it out from the sky, you know, from their team and say, here you go. You know, here's Kathleen, right? Here's Ben, here's Edwin, right? Here's Mike, here's Felix. And these are going to be your engineers. And so it was just an incredible, fantastic support because you spend no time recruiting. You're, you're just run, 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 run. You spend no time doing things like copy editing a website because there's a professional who's doing that. And so what we've been able to accomplish uh, in the past year, I think would have taken me at least three years if I was doing this by myself. That's incredible. And so how many of those people that you came in and had this, it sounds almost like the cloud. It's like the cloud of, of startups. Um, you had all this access to help that was just there. It was kind of infrastructure that was already built. How many of those people are on your team today? Or at some point, do you say, thank you, now I'm ready to go build a team and raise money and, and do that stuff? Are they just like bouncing from founder to founder to founder to help them? Uh, how's that part work? Yeah. So in terms of the team, you know, the engineers stayed with me, right, the entire time, because I think we want that knowledge, right, to to stick around. And so, yes, they might be working on other projects, um, but they're also working on future acres. And as time went on, I had engineers like Felix Blanco, who's one of my tech leads, who he was like, oh, I'm going to be full time on this. Vera is full time on the, the software and perception side and eventually brought in a CTO. So you have a mix of that. The uh, operator strategists, I've had a few over the past year, but that worked. To be frank, it didn't disrupt anything. Um, it worked with you know how this model is. And the ultimate goal, right? I think we know, you know, if we've become a Series A company, we've raised eight to ten million dollars. You know, we will have a full time team working full time on this project. That will absolutely make sense. But the question is, for that zero to one incubation phase of a company, especially for hardware and robotics, which takes a lot of you know, time and money and effort to capitalize and to build, is there a smarter way to do that? And I think this is pretty innovative structure. Yeah. And I would think for the type of people who love to work in that specific sphere, in the zero to one, if I'm an engineer and I just love to build prototypes, like this is an ideal job for me, right? Because I just bounce from kind of one prototype to another, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can add one more thing, right, because you have other companies in the space that are building automation solutions, 
you just turn over to them and say, hey, autonomous lawnmower, you're building a dashboard. We need to build a dashboard. Can we just borrow your dashboard and iterate upon it? And wow, we just saved five months of development. And so those type of things where, as you know, right, there's this obsession around IP and, and like controlling your technology and not sharing it. And so this is a way to break out of that a little bit where we can still develop an IP strategy and we are absolutely doing that. There's also a sharing mechanism here, I think, which is pretty powerful. Really cool. And so then is WaveMaker set up the way a normal venture capital firm would be set up in terms of, you know, they've got LPs, they take their percentage. It's just instead of placing bets and, and giving you the money, they sort of facilitate this in exchange for equity early on. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's it's the former. I think you hit on it exactly. So there is WaveMaker sort of venture, which is a $600 million assets under management fund based in LA and Singapore. And then there's WaveMaker Labs. And so WaveMaker Labs is the venture studio, and they do have right, LPs who invest in that entity, hoping for all these companies to grow and, and to eventually to exit. Interesting. Okay. And last question on sort of the structure of this. The money that pays for WaveMaker Labs, is it raised like a fund or is it uh, funded in a totally separate way? So the initial capital was raised like a fund. So Waymaker Labs was founded by Buck Jordan, who I think is a fairly well-known investor in the LA area and had some successful exits. So based on that success, he was able to fundraise for Waymaker Labs as that initial capital. Okay. And so when you took on this, uh, they recruited you specifically to come work on autonomy in agriculture, right? Yes. Yes. And do you, do you see like the venture studio model as particularly well-suited for hardware companies? Yeah, I actually, I mean, that's a great point. I had never really thought of it until you said it. Um, but yeah, I actually think so because you're, you're de-risking that part of the company building process. You're really trying to say this venture studio is going to take on a lot of that zero to one risk, uh, the pre-commercialization risk, you know, and at that point it's, it's setting it up for, you know, investment and manufacturing and, and things like that. Let's maybe talk about the company here. I really appreciate you kind of giving all those details on the venture studio because I'm personally very interested in alternative funding models. And I think we're going to come back to that point uh, and talk about crowdfunding maybe a little bit later. But uh, for now, I want to make sure we don't get too distracted away from future acres. Where are you in terms of the development? And uh, I know you mentioned it's sort of like an unmanned autonomous way to move fruit and uh, kind of where is the company now and, and what's next? Yeah. So in terms of where we are, we had a successful demo on October 27th with a partner farm, uh, 2021. And so that was a, a huge milestone from a product side, really validated our product strategy and our approach and, and some of our key product features. And so our goals for 2022 is then to use that as our foundation and build uh, not just one, but 10 units by harvest season of this year. So harvest season really starts, you know, July uh, into November. But our goal is September, really, to roll these out and then to pilot with some of our fantastic farm partners. Okay. And talk about this labor challenge, because... To oversimplify things, it's, you know, we struggle to get enough labor to 
produce and harvest our crops and automation can surely help. But I think it's a lot more nuanced once you get into it. And your solution is an interesting one because it's, you know, augmenting labor. It's not replacing labor. It's helping labor be more efficient, more effective. Can you talk about, was that an intentional decision to go that route and kind of the importance of that? Yeah. So I think first, as you said, that labor challenge, one, we're seeing that farms, if you talk about one of their number one challenges, uh, it is around people and, and the quote unquote labor shortage. So 20% in many places, you know, this past summer, and it's exacerbated really by an aging workforce. Average age, I believe is 42. That's declining 7% a year. But you know, as you said, this is a complex solution. Um, and oftentimes when I'm pitch, right, there's no time to really talk about the complexity of it. But I think it's important to sort of address, right, this more of the systemic issues around it, right? The the seasonal nature of the work, the legal status right, of our of our migrant workers, right? The physical toll, the real physical toll of this work, and especially in the era of, of climate change. And so, you know, from the point of view of who our workers are, I think, right, we, of course, know it, um, even if we don't talk about it, but 75% of our workers are undocumented. And so that represents a challenge in their lives and, and as well as the farms. And a third to a half of, of ag workers are, are resigning in California because it is, right, the base for, for specialty crops or most of our specialty crops. And so that's around 500 to 800,000 ag workers today. And so this is, when you think about it, a really massive challenge when we think about the future of work. So for us, how we're addressing it is primarily the technology, but we also have a community and educational angle as well. So with the technology, as you said, what we're developing is what we call a harvest sidekick. We're not trying to displace or remove people. Essentially, the farm worker works with Carrie or the robot to save those two hours out of the day, they're spent hauling wheelbarrows around a, a farm. So what we learned is that oh, the wheelbarrow was actually invented in 231 CE in China. And if you look at pictures, if you Google pictures, it's basically the same technology. And so we're like, maybe we can change it a little bit, right? We don't have to change it in a crazy way, but just a little bit. It might be time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it might be time. Time is now. So really, we started, you know, like, hey, this is a problem set that we can solve and we can solve it within a couple of years. I think picking, you know, apple picking, strawberry picking is fantastic to dream about and thinking about, but we're still a ways away from those commercialization solutions. And again, this is what do farms want today? And they're like, this actually solves a problem for today. And then you say, well, what about data and analytics? And they're like, not yet, not yet, not yet. But we're like, cool, well, let's build something that gives you the foundation for the data and analytics because you have something that can move across the farm and we can start capturing yield. We can start capturing time, like location stamps. And so when you need it, we'll be ready. And so that's why for us, it's kind of developing a little bit of this platform solution has been important. Yeah, it makes total sense. I, I think, you know, that's where you've seen a lot of companies really struggle in agriculture is when it's you're trying to sell a narrative on the future and the grower has problems today. And it's like, I am not going to take a risk on something that might help me someday in the future. I've got problems of my own right now. And so it's super smart that you can kind of get in there right away. What about the addressable market here? You know, you're in table grapes, acreage wise, not a big crop compared to many others. How does this scale beyond table grapes, or is that a concern for you and investors that you talk to? Yeah, this is a the million dollar, billion dollar question, really, which is, you know, how big is this market and where can we go next? And 
I think the really interesting part for us is we can see ourselves going in three different directions. And so right now, the focus, of course, is building the foundation and actually building the technology. But the, our first option is really to sit there and say, can we be a bit more of a year-round solution for table grapes? post-harvest, looking at the leftover wood on the vine, pre-harvest, looking at the color of the grapes, right, using computer vision technologies, and then adding things like um, sprayers, for example, right, and adding things. So really hardcore optimizing both the hardware applications as well as that data and analytical piece. The second option is, is expanding into other specialty crops. So, right, this isn't a problem that only exists for, for table grapes. It exists for, as you said, the berries, whether it's the blueberries, the raspberries, or the strawberries, your stone fruits, your apples, so various types of industries. So yes, the hardware would have to be switched up, but once you develop that software, that is much more replicable right across spaces. And so that itself is really, really interesting to think about. And the third is really looking at these support organizations, these larger organizations who might be like, hey, we're a table grape breeder. For example, like Sunworld, you know, or we're a sales and marketer, you know, like like Oppie and say, well, we want ground truth data. That would be really helpful. We work with these farms. We really want to support these farms. Well, I'll pay for your pilots, actually. Right. Like it's, it's an incredible ecosystem that exists. But we want ground truth data as their way in which, you know, with the farms, right, use this data in more meaningful ways. So from a commercial perspective, we really see opportunity in all three. But to be completely honest, I'm not 100% sure which direction we're going to go in. We're working through that research like now and then over the next few months and figuring out the total addressable market, you know, all the things that we'll need to do to sort of make that decision. And then customers, of course, should be driving that direction. Yeah. So I know there's at least a couple other companies that are that have similar type units and with you all kind of hitting the market or, you know, around the same time within a few years of each other, how has that been? And has there been a lot of talk uh, with customers about like, you know, well, what's different from you versus, you know, what are these others? I know like uh, Burrow and Venergy are the two that come to mind on, on my end, but has that been a challenge or is it just still just such a frontier for them that it's, it's not really an issue yet? I think it's definitely still a frontier. So what I've gathered that no one is loyal to one solution yet. So I've spoken to farms who've said, we've tested Vinergy, we've tested Burrow, now we want to test you and we're going to wait till you're ready this harvest season. And so I feel very grateful, right, for the path that Charlie from Burrow has paved the way, right? Like he spent, what was it, maybe eight years? Yeah, I'm probably getting that years wrong, really educating the market, you know, both the investor market um, as well, of course, the customer market in terms of these types of solutions, which meant for us, we don't have to explain what we do. Farms understand it, investors understand it, all stakeholders immediately understand it, which is fantastic when you think about adoption and adoption rates. I think what's also really interesting is that the three of us, Finergy, Future Acres, and Burrow, we have, it seems like, very different types of products. Just looking at how they look. And right, I don't have access to exactly what Burrow's doing or exactly what Vinergy's doing, but at least what I see from the website or an article. And so I think that's really fantastic, right? Because we're trying to see if, you know, we're Coke and Pepsi perhaps, but, you know, there are some different special sauces there. There's some different features. And, you know, I think there's enough space for all three of us to play 
and still capture our market and develop our technologies. And over time, I think our product strategies are going to diverge in different ways. You know, I think Burrow joining the John Deere program where John Deere does not focus on specialty crops, right? Um, they only focus on row crops, I think is a really interesting piece of info. Yeah, it makes you wonder what they're seeing, if they're, if they're seeing opportunity in, in row crops for a unit like this, which would certainly open things up for all three of you. Well, I want to talk more about kind of the you know, alternative funding models, specifically in ag tech. And and maybe a good place to start is, I know you have some experience with crowdfunding as well. Can you maybe talk about equity crowdfunding and um, just take that whatever direction you want to go to start with? And I'm sure we'll have some follow-up questions for you on it as well. Sure. So I've been exposed to equity crowdfunding for a little more than a year, so I don't claim to be an expert, um, but I can can speak from my experience. So from my understanding, 2012, um, the Jobs Act came into being, and a small slice of the Jobs Act loosened kind of our definitions of who could invest in companies. And so there was two ways, um, you know, over time, Jobs Act evolved, there was more different mandates, but there was sort of Reg A uh, and Reg CF. And so if you decided to equity crowdfund, which means I could say, Tim, you can be an investor, right? Then if you did a Reg A, it would mean your minimum investment size was 1,000. If you did a Reg CF, uh, minimum investment size was, I believe, 200. And so you could go ahead and say, I'm going to go out to the crowd. And really, this community, and whether it was Republic, right, which has raised over $100 million, or Seed Invest, or Start Engine, and even now Wavemaker, you could go ahead on these platforms and raise your first half a million million, 10 million, even 26 million, right? And so in the past year, we raised our first 1.5 million via the equity crowdfunding platform, Seed Invest. That's incredible. Okay. So yeah, we really got to dive into this. How did you know how to do that? You said it's your first experience doing it. So maybe share with us some of the key insights, assuming that the people listening want to do something like this themselves. Who is this right for? And what do you need to make sure that you do to be as successful as you all were? Yeah, so Waymaker has become probably the premier organization in terms of raising money via equity crowdfunding. They have gotten very, very, very good at it. It is both an art and a science if you do it in the right way. Think about Kickstarter campaigns or Indiegogo, right? Like if you know what you're doing, you probably will do really well. If you don't know what you're doing, you might get lucky, but probably not, right? Um, And it's the same thing with equity crowdfunding. So really, you know, we're partners, right? So leaned on that support where they had a team who said, we know what we're doing, we're going to go ahead and equity crowdfund, you come in, you pitch, right, help with story narrative, right, share updates, all of this stuff. So that was incredibly valuable. I think in terms of what companies you're seeing on the platform, and then the exciting part of I think what companies will see in the future is, I think what you've seen is a lot of consumer facing Companies that really feel applicable to the everyday person, the pizza making robot. Great. I love pizza. I want to invest in it. So one of the challenges we had is early on, um, you know, someone from our team was like, who's going to invest in like a wagon? And I was like, it's a sexy wagon. I want, you know, what do you mean? It's great. You know, and so it's for me try to sit there and say, okay, actually is the average person, you know, do they get excited about agriculture? Do they get excited about farming? And so I actually think that's really where our opportunity now is, is how do we take 
something like agriculture. And as we know, right, most people are very disconnected from food systems and agriculture, but start helping with that story. And so that's where I get really excited. I think, you know, I spoke at CES in February on a couple panels. And in one way, it was like, why would you speak at CES? You're a B2B. But at the other perspective was, you know, I think if we can tell our stories and narratives more, we can start connecting more of the everyday population into our type of solutions and, and hopefully they get excited by it. That's really cool. Was your intention to get like some strategic investors on board through this crowdfunding? I'm just curious, like in my mind, it could be a way for ag tech companies, obviously to raise money, but also to give potential customers a chance to become, you know, owners in the company. Is that part of it or is that kind of a separate thing? I think that should be part of it. I don't think we've hit that yet. I've had a couple investors on the equity crowdfunding side who did invest like around 25K or 30K, which are bigger checks uh, for these types of rounds. Right now, I'm institutionally fundraising as well, which is very interesting experience trying to explain venture studios, equity crowdfunding, uh, and agriculture and robotics. So all four, but I think it's worthwhile, right? I think it's going to help grow the industry overall. But, you know, that third piece around, you know, farms, farmers, I think we have to develop those communities, right? And I think there's fantastic associations, the Produce Marketing Association and what Bonnie's built there, Nature Conservancy and what Renee's built there. I think Connie Bowen from Ag Launch, right? There's a lot of fantastic people who have these communities and we just need to say, like, by the way, would you be interested in this? Would you be interested in participating in this and supporting this? effort investing it, you know, and hopefully getting a return at the end of the day. That's really interesting. So with the crowdfunding, it's, it sounds like that's another place where this venture studio has just really come in handy, where they have a team that they probably have a process like, okay, we need to hit these milestones to have a successful crowdfunding campaign. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And is there anything there you can share that either made a big difference for you or learnings that maybe something you wouldn't have expected was important, but it ended up being really important? Yeah, such an excellent question. So I'd say a couple of things. I think one, you know, building something that looks appealing. So we, we do have a bit of a consumer facing brand for those who've been on our website, right? It's, it's very polished for a very early stage company, but it's also because, you know, in this era of social media, right? And marketing and, you know, like having something that does look professional, I think matters. So we had a great video, great website, and really focused on our story. And why are we here? Why do we exist? And so that takes time to build, but it was very important for us. So I think that's a pro tip. I think the second is that you do have to market. And so that's something that you know, I'm not an expert on, but there is a, a level of marketing that is involved when you equity crowdfund and reaching out to, again, people who you think would be interested in investing. And then third, like having things to share, right? You, you do need milestones. And so if your campaign is seven months, right, make sure, like, is it aligning with the milestones that you have as a company? Because maybe you're not ready to equity crowdfund, maybe wait six months or wait a year. But if you keep in mind that most of these campaigns are at least six months old, but you want to have some exciting updates, whether that is an investor or a customer or something else. That makes a lot of sense with the milestones and, and aligning it there. What's this do to your cap table? I mean, now that you're raising institutional funds, are they like, whoa, you've got like a thousand people on your cap table? I mean, how, how does that work exactly? 
Yeah, so that's a potent question. Of I think, you know, it is one line on the cap table, so it really doesn't mess up the cleanliness of the cap table. But because of the venture studio model, the cap table does look different than like a traditional company. I think the positive in that is. I think we have this myth in our society of sort of the founder CEO hero, and so the CEO gets all of the accolades, like all the press, all of the everything. And I think CEOs are important, but I think what that means is that oftentimes the employee structures, right, can be misaligned. So I think venture studios have the ability to correct that, but institutional investors. It's new to them, so you know they're like, "Well, who's incentivized? How much are they? This is what our comps are. Are they going to stay?" And these are really important and fantastic questions. Like, I, I think I welcome it from both ends, but again, I think we're only really going to solve some of the bigger problems we're facing in society if we do look at our existing models, whether it's entrepreneurship, company building, fundraising, and think creatively about like what can we do. Better, right? For higher efficiency, more collaboration, things like that. And is what you're referring to that I would guess with a venture studio model, the founder probably has less equity than they're used to seeing in a Series A round. I would imagine the venture studio has, you know, more equity than a, a normal seed investor. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. That okay. Way. Okay. Yeah. It's so interesting. So, I, I mean, I, I just find alternative funding models in general to be really interesting because we've seen and we've talked about it on the show a million times, like traditional venture capital model is fantastic for a very small sliver of companies. And there's this whole like wide swath of companies that could be really successful if they had something that was compatible with them. You know, if somebody were to develop a community, you mentioned some communities earlier with Connie and Renee and Vani, if somebody were to develop a community and then say, wow, I believe in future acres, I want to form a special purpose vehicle and participate in an investment round from you as a founder, what are the pros and cons to considering that? That's all pros. Yeah, there's no cons on that. I will say we just today closed around with two entities, the Climate Corporation and a group called Gangels, which is, does a lot of hardware. And they rolled up an SVP on AngelList and raised all in after fees was $75,000 for us. So, you know, I think um, at the end of the day, there, this is all positive. The more community that can get involved, I get really excited about. Very cool. Well, let's talk about kind of the future of Future Acres. You know, we, we've talked about where it can go from here with data and analytics and, you know, maybe even precision spraying and harvesting. Is that what's next? You know, once you all have kind of found product market fit with this, where does it go from here if we were to look out five, 10 years? Yeah, I think you hit on it. I think what we're excited about is once we've built that ruggedized intelligent transport solution, then we, on the data and analytics side, we start understanding what other data that we can capture. So it could be crop quality, it could be crop health, it could be other types of environmental data. And then, you know, how do we analyze and present it to farms so that they can make hopefully better resource decisions, whether that's land or water or people what have you. And so I think that's incredibly exciting, right? That's sort of that precision agriculture. And then I think on the hardware side as well, it, it's we will be able to automate other parts of the process. And so we're starting with transport because in the grand scheme of things, right, it's a bit of a low hanging fruit of being able to get done. And we know picking is a bit of the holy grail, right? That, you know, fantastic folks like, you know, Vance Farms and FF Robotics, right, are focusing on Wavemaker purchased um, 
is relaunching Abundant Robotics, uh, by the way. Um, so sorry, I'm dropping that on you at the last moment, but we we are planning, you know, next year really to to relaunch that company. We purchased the IP, and so want to do that in a smart, strategic way. But I think, you know, that that could be really interesting for our company as well. We have access to a lot of these labels and the computer vision algorithms and things like that. Yeah. And what a story that would be if they can relaunch that company successfully to show the potential and the power of the venture studio model. That would be such an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. That's the dream. <laughs> that is very cool. All right. Well, so last question on the venture studio part of things. I look at it like, you know, you were hired in, in the nest, sort of like figuring this, this out. Then you kind of leave the nest, you go, you raise series A, you become a standalone company, you take some employees with you, you hire your own employees. And then the venture studio is at the same time doing the same with other people. Like assuming they buy, you know, abundant robotics, they're going to recruit someone to lead that company, I would imagine. And they're just kind of continuing to churn through those ideas. Is that right? Yeah, I, you, you hit on it a hundred percent. And so I will say if if there are folks who are interested in leading these kinds of companies, hit me up on, on LinkedIn and find me or, or email me because I'm happy to talk to you. And I will make sure to put a link in the show notes to Suma's LinkedIn profile and of course to Future Acres website, which is just futureacres.co. I'll also link to Wavemaker Studio, which I think is such a cool concept and one that I hope continues to grow in ag tech. If you're not familiar with Abundant Robotics that she mentioned there towards the end of the episode, they were developing a robotic apple picker, but unfortunately closed down last year. And apparently their IP is now down at Wavemaker, so that's really cool. Huge thank you to Connie Bowen for introducing me to Suma and helping to make today's episode possible. Connie is a longtime friend, former guest of the podcast, and one of the incredible people who is part of the FOA community. So as that group continues to grow, they're becoming more and more a central part of the show. You could join them if you'd like over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm-hmm.